Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Thanks for joining me tonight. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson, and we are excited to have you here, as well as a great conversation that will begin in just a little bit. We've got Dr. Peter Langdon Ward joining us to talk about global warming. He's a geophysicist, and he disagrees with a lot of the scientific community, not necessarily about whether or not global warming is occurring, but what the cause is. He's done a lot of research. He's made this a bit of his life's mission at this point, and he'll be talking about that during uh, most of the program tonight when we bring him in after the first break. And we will take your phone calls, by the way, to discuss this topic as well at 607-282-4497. We also have a toll-free number if you need a toll-free number. That's 844-687-7669. So great show ahead of us tonight. Uh, don't forget, tomorrow night is a best-of program, as every Friday is here on Beyond Reality Radio. Next week, we've got some great guests lining up. The schedule is still being uh, determined because we're trying to keep a spot open for uh, somebody that we had to reschedule. But we will have Greg Clark on the show next week. He's the author of a couple of books, Ghost Country and Three Days in 63, which discusses the unsolved murder of Francis Bullock and also the Appalachian hauntings. And then we'll also have Ryan O'Shea, who's an entrepreneur and a futurist. We'll be talking about transhumanism, biohacking, and the future of humanity. I think that one will be Wednesday night, but we'll have that schedule uh, finalized in the next day or so for you. Uh, in the meantime, swing by our, our Facebook page and give it a like, facebook.com uh, slash Radio. Also stop by J.V. Johnson, like that as well. And look for YouTube, because on YouTube, if you can't get the show on a radio station near you, the YouTube option is a great option. It streams as long as you have data, you can stream it. You can stream it live. You can uh, visit old programs there as well. There, I think there are like 300 archived shows there on the YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find it and uh, subscribe to it. Hit the notification icon so you're alerted when we go live. There's also some bonus content on there as well. So a lot of things to do tonight and a great conversation ahead of us, so I won't waste any more time. We'll get right to it. We'll go to break. We'll come back with our guest, Dr. Peter Langdon Ward. We're talking about global warming tonight on Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products, and all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark, because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. Welcome back to the show. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here tonight. We've got a very interesting, fascinating, in fact, conversation ahead of us tonight. Uh, we will be taking your calls later in the show at 607-282-4497 or toll-free at 
687-7669. Our guest tonight, Dr. Peter Langdon Ward, is a geophysicist. His website is whyclimatechanges.com and also physically-impossible.com, a couple URLs to choose from. And he's got a book out that's called What Really Causes Global Warming, and that's the topic of our conversation uh, tonight. Dr. Peter Langdon Ward, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's an honor to have you here. Well, JV, it's a real pleasure. So we're going to be talking about global warming, but I think the first and most obvious question is, because I think there is some question in some people's minds, are we in fact warming? The world has warmed. We've warmed about a... um, six-tenths of a degree centigrade, almost two degrees Fahrenheit from 1975 to 1998. And then we warmed another three-tenths of a degree centigrade from 2013 to 2016. There are millions of temperature records that have been analyzed by uh, several major government organizations. They all come up with the same basic conclusion. We are warming. And I think most of us feel that. When we talk about warming, and we talk about warming in the time span that you just outlined, 1975 to date, let's say, um, you know, we're not talking about geological time here. We're talking about human lifespan time. Can we determine trends in that short of a period of time? Oh, certainly. I mean, again, the uh, all four major analyses of temperature data show very, very clearly that from 1945 to 1975, there was very little change in temperature on average. From 1975 to 1998, there was major warming. From 98 to 2013, there was very little change in temperature. 2014 to 2016, there was very rapid change in temperature, and then it's gotten cooler since. So when we talk about warming, let's assume that that is is, uh, what we're experiencing here. It seems as though the data points to that. then the second question and the follow-up is, uh, who's, what, who or what is causing it? Well, of course, most scientists in the world today are convinced that greenhouse gases are the cause. But as I just said, there were sudden changes in trends over the last 50 years. Green, greenhouse gases have just been increasing at an ever-increasing rate. So there's no direct relationship between greenhouse gas concentrations and temperature, observed temperature changes. So that would mean that if uh, greenhouse gases are increasing steadily, we should see a correlating increase, a steady increase in temperatures, but that's not what's happening is what you're saying. No, and you would think so. I mean, when we look at ice records from Antarctica over the last 800,000 years, we see going in and out of ice ages uh, that ocean temperature getting cooler and then getting warmer again, and CO2 getting less CO2 and then more CO2. But it actually fits quite well with the solubility of CO2 in water. And most of the detailed studies show that the major periods of warming were, uh, major periods of increase of CO2 were several hundred years after the increases in warming. So what it fits is that water is, absorbs CO2 when it's cold and lets it out when it's, when it's hotter. We all know this, and we sit in the bar too long and our beer gets flat. All the CO2 comes out of it as it warms up. So as we've seen cyclical changes in climate uh, in Earth's history, we all know there was an ice age or multiple ice ages, and we know that uh, they come and go. Um, 
obviously humans weren't burning fossil fuels at that time. What is causing these cycles in the Earth's climate? Well, I should start, first of all, by saying what caused the warming from 75 to, to 98. Okay. Because that was human cause, and that has a lot to do with a mechanism that we're going to get into what happened in geologic time. What happened was in the 60s, CFC gases, chlorofluorocarbon gases, became very popular for use in spray can propellants, for uh, uh, fire extinguishers, for uh, foam blowing, for uh, all kinds of uses, because CFCs just don't interact with things chemically much, and so they're much cheaper and safer to use. We found, starting in the 1970s, an increase in ozone depletion. And it was 1985 that we realized the Antarctic ozone hole got really big. And uh, two scientists in, in 1974 pointed out that these CFCs, when they get high into the stratosphere, particularly in the winter, uh, get broken down by ultraviolet radiation, which causes release of chlorine atoms. And one atom of chlorine can destroy about 200,000 molecules of ozone. And so this is the Achilles heel of climate. Now, the, the ozone layer is very important because it absorbs the highest energy radiation coming from the sun. And when you thin the ozone layer, more of this ultraviolet B radiation reaches Earth. This ultraviolet B radiation is very, very hot. It causes sunburn, causes skin cancer, causes cataracts. It's nasty stuff. You really don't want to get much of it. But when you deplete the ozone layer, sometimes as much as 50 or 70 percent, you get a lot of this on Earth. And that's where the heat came from, from 1975 to 1998. The problem with CFCs is they last forever. It's going to be three, four, five decades before the level of CFCs in the atmosphere goes down to the level it was in 1970. And meanwhile, we're going to stay warm. So I... I kind of remember um, as a child, maybe in the 70s, the alarm being sounded on um, uses of CFCs in propellants and the destruction of the ozone layer. So at, at some point, the alarm bell was ringing. Why does it seem that the, uh, the, the eyes have been taking off the, off the ball, if you will, and diverted to CO2 and greenhouse gases when clearly this was identified as a problem not that long ago? Well, the, the really good news about ozone depletion is we realized the problem. Uh, within two years of discovering the Antarctic ozone hole, scientists and political leaders at the U.N. worked together to pass the Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete the ozone layer. And this took effect in, in January of 1989, and it required major cutbacks in the production of CFC gases. Well, sure enough, by 1993, the increase in CFC gases in the atmosphere stopped. By 1995, the increase in ozone depletion stopped. By 1998, the increase in temperature stopped. So man turned it on and man turned it off. In both cases, it was not intentional, but that's the way it worked out. So we solved that problem. There's still some black market in, in, in CFCs, and there, there's still some problems to deal with it, but we basically solved that problem. The, other, the next problem was what caused the warming from 2014 to 2016, and 
that turns out to be a major eruption of black basaltic lava in Iceland, in central Iceland, from a volcano called Bardabunga. In six months, the lava covered an area of 33 square miles. That's about the size of Manhattan. This was the largest basaltic lava flow since um, 1783. A major discovery from my work, looking back throughout geologic time, is every time you find a major lava flow covering hundreds of square miles, you find major warming. And in one case, 251 million years ago, there was a lava flow that covered a part of Siberia almost the size of the United States. Just imagine black lava all the way across from New York City to San Francisco. So, So what I've noted and what I've documented in some detail is that throughout geologic time, we find that basaltic volcanoes are associated, basaltic lava flows are associated with rapid warming, often within years. The other part of the story for climate change is that big explosive volcanic eruptions, like Mount Pinatubo in 1991, they blow a lot of stuff up into the stratosphere, and sulfur dioxide and water mix together in the stratosphere and form sulfuric acid, which forms a, a mist or an aerosol that reflects sunlight. And so the effect of big explosive volcanoes, which do deplete ozone in the short term, but they form these aerosols that end up cooling the earth about a half a degree centigrade for typically about three years. So all major explosive eruptions that we know of in written history were associated with cooling of the earth. So it turns out that you get warming of the earth by basaltic lava flows, warming within years. Whereas the cooling, if you have four or five of these big explosive eruptions per century, they accumulate the cooling, and it will be cooler at the end of the century. If that continues for thousands of years, that's how we get down into an ice age. So volcanoes rule climate change. They cause warming and cooling. When we're talking about a basaltic um, lava flow, are we talking about something like we've seen in Hawaii recently? Um, what exactly is that? Well, it's, you're exactly right. I mean, our, our greatest familiarity with basaltic lava flows are in Hawaii. And the eruption recently on the East Rift in Hawaii, um, it only lasted a few months. During that time, it was uh, coming out with a volume that was somewhat equivalent to Barthabunga in Iceland. But uh, it was Barthabunga was six months, and the, this was one of the biggest eruptions in Hawaii, was only three months. It's not clear how much effect it had on climate. We're down in the noise at that point. But um, it is exactly the kind of eruption we're talking about. The real difference is how much it spreads out over the land. The, uh, many people are familiar with Craters of the Moon National Monument in, in south-central Idaho. And this was a place where lavas covered an area of almost 500 square miles 2,200 uh, years ago, with 200 B.C., which was the time of the Roman Warm Period. So we can associate that particular lava flow with the Roman Warm Period. There was a lava flow in Iceland around 964 A.D., and that was associated with the start of the medieval warm period. 
But we carry this back all through geologic time. We see a one-to-one correspondence. We have just about a minute before we have to go to break here. Um, if if the correlation is that clear and that obvious, why has this message been so difficult for you to deliver? Actually, de- the delivering isn't the hard part. Some of the acceptance, I guess, is. The problem is that there's two, two basic problems. One is that scientists decided 20 years ago that in order to get political leaders to spend the money necessary to reduce greenhouse gases, they needed to demonstrate consensus. Consensus is the stuff of politics, debates the stuff of science. Anyway, there was a political decision made by scientists that long ago. The other fundamental problem is that there are many skeptics out there who are not talking very good science, but it made a lot of noise, and there's a lot of confusion, and the scientists are basically taking the position that anybody that doesn't agree with the consensus must be wrong. It turns out I've discovered a fundamental problem in physics, which is the reason why greenhouse gas theory is impossible. It's not just that it's mistaken. It's physically impossible. Peter, before we get back into the meat of this discussion, um, your resume is is, uh, impressive. Uh, You've had a long and varied career, done a lot of really amazing things. At what point did climate change become uh, something that you wanted to focus on? Well, I retired in 1998 and spent a lot of time doing a lot of things. But in 2006, I came across very clear evidence from the Greenland ice sheet that at the end of the last ice age, uh, the greatest volcanism recorded in Greenland ice was exactly when we warmed out of the ice age. I climbed my first volcano at the age 19, the first active volcano, studied volcanoes all my life, and I know that um, volcanoes basically cause cooling. And I said, how could they cause warming too? And this was an enigma that really got my, my curiosity. And after looking at the data for a while and realizing it was really good data, I had an instinct that if I could figure this out, it might become important. So I pretty much gave up everything else in my life except for my family and uh, have been working full-time for 13 years, been through over 10,000 professional papers, shelves of books, endless websites. Um, it's, it's been quite an exploration. And looking back, it's now very obvious, but it wasn't that way. It, it, it took a lot of work over 13 years to begin to realize, for things to begin to unravel. It seems like every step of the way, as you were uh, working through these 13 years and, as you said, researching in very uh, various locations many different ways, it seems like each step of the way you be- you've become more and more convinced that you're on the right track here. Yeah, well, what's been really fun, I mean, I was 27 years of the U.S. Geological Survey. I managed a major national program. Um, I've testified before Congress a couple of times. I worked on a committee for Vice President Gore back in the 90s. Um, I worked, I'm chair of a committee at the White House. I've been around science a long time. One of the problems when you're employed like that is you've got a lot of things that have to get done. Uh, being retired, being self-funded, uh, the last 13 years, I've just been able to let my mind wander. And whenever a question came up that didn't seem right, I could go off into physics or off into chemistry or biology or geology or whatever and try to figure it out. And it, it's, it's really interesting looking back. At, I just kept asking questions, 
And it turns out that I've ended up making a very fundamental discovery in physics, which has major implications for physics, but it also one of the implications is that greenhouse warming theory is mistaken. Let's talk about that. What is the discovery that has determined for you that greenhouse gas theory is just impossible? Well, for greenhouse gas theory to be impossible, the fundamental fact of life is that a body cannot be warmed by, a, by its own radiation. When you think about it that way, I mean, if you have two people standing next to each other, uh, they're not going to make each other hotter. It has to be a hotter body. The source of the radiation has to be hotter in order for heat to flow and cause you to warm up. You don't get hot standing next to a cold stove. So um, just at a very basic energy fundamental level, greenhouse warming theory is physically impossible because a body cannot be warmed in any way by its own radiation. At a little deeper level, Part of the problem that I discovered that goes back a couple of hundred years is that today in physics, in climate science, we think of energy of radiation in terms of an amount of radiation, an amount of radiation that is flowing in watts per square meter. And we add all that together and we, we, we basically think that if Earth loses heat at a slower rate, Earth must get hotter because it's still getting the same heat in from the sun. It turns out that's all wrong. The radiation is not about amount. It is about frequency, which is about the temperature of the source. And if, if you go to physically-impossible.com, I explain this in some detail. Is it true that the sun goes through cycles and those cycles do um, vary the amount of heat and radiation that is hitting the Earth from the sun? Yeah, um, it is very small changes. They're not important changes. The most important thing I've discovered from the geology side, the geologic record tells us a lot about climate, and particularly the ice core records uh, in the last few hundred thousand years, we have really good detail for climate change. And what we see is there are, you have rapid warming within a year or a few years, followed by slow cooling over millennia. And these sequences are typically a few thousand years each on average, but they're highly erratic. They're not cyclic. So from the geologic record, I can say very clearly that any cyclic explanation for climate change is simply not important. It's not a major, it may have some effect. And the two most common are that the sun does go through solar cycles, that we see sunspot cycles, uh, and also the, the concept that the orbits change a little bit with periods of 41,000 and 100,000 years. Um, both of those may have some effect, but they're not a primary cause of climate change. When we look at the scientific community that um, has been screaming basically at the top of their lungs about the need to cut CO2 emissions and stop the burning of fossil fuels, um, you know, all the things that they're saying are contributing to this problem. How could so many of these people be so wrong or are they just not admitting the truth? Well, they very genuinely believe 
based on everything they've known in their life, all their training, all of their research. They are convinced greenhouse gases cause the problem, and they are very concerned about the future of humanity. The problem is the science turns out to be wrong. Science builds constantly. You know, our, our whole quality of life, our ability to have this many people on the planet, all of the technology we have is all based in science. And this has gotten better and better over the years. But science, looking at the bigger picture, tends to go through revolutions. And a revolution in science is when somebody comes along and says, wait a minute, it doesn't behave, here's evidence that it doesn't behave the way everybody thinks it behaves. And that's what I'm doing. I'm coming along with actually probably one of the biggest um, revolutions in the history of science. It's certainly the most expensive, uh, both economically and politically. Uh, and I'm saying, wait a minute, heat, you don't understand heat correctly. The way heat flows is something very different from what all your equations and all your thinking does. You know, we've been arguing for 2,500 years whether light whether radiation is a wave, travels through space as a wave, or travels as a, as a photon, as a particle. Right. It turns out it, it can't travel as a wave because a wave is deformation of matter, and there's no matter in space. And this was a big argument back in the 1800s, but they showed in 1887 that it, that it, it can't, radiation cannot travel as waves in space. Then we came up with the idea of photons, and actually the idea of particles goes back to Newton and long before him um, that thinks that light travels as particles. What I'm saying is light is many, 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 many frequencies all happening simultaneously, and each of those frequencies travels just like the radio signal from your favorite radio station to your radio receiver. You know, every radio station is given a frequency by the government that it can broadcast on. And you tune your radio receiver to resonate at that frequency. And what that means is your radio receiver gets that radio station with a much bigger signal than all the other radio stations that are out there. What I'm saying now is heat travels as frequency. It's a broad spectrum of frequencies. Each frequency is traveling by resonance. And it's this whole spectrum traveling simultaneously that makes up heat. And, and when we talk about the ozone layer, which you say is the linchpin to this whole idea, um, it protects us from a majority of that heat from the sun. Is that right? Yeah, and the important thing is um, scientists today basically argue that there is a greater amount of energy in the infrared, which is absorbed by CO2, than the amount of ultraviolet energy coming from the sun uh, when ozone is depleted. It isn't about amount, and that's the mistake. The fact is you can absorb for the rest of your life all the radiation coming from Earth, and it'll never cause sunburn, whereas ultraviolet B radiation from sun, you just get a little of that, and you can get a severe sunburn. So the problem was that the physicists and today, well, climate scientists, think of radiation. A greater amount comes from the sun than from Earth, but if you get enough from Earth, it could do things like what comes from the sun, but it can't. Radiation, ultraviolet radiation is hot. 
it, it causes chemical reactions. It causes changes. It's the most energetic energy reaching the Earth's surface from the sun. And when we modulate that, when we, the ozone layer, think of it like Venetian blinds. When they're open, more of that comes down. Uh, and and we measure it coming to Earth. Now, for those who don't know, um, you can help uh, explain this, but ozone is basically a, 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 a different form of oxygen, correct? Yes, basically oxygen is made up of two atoms of oxygen that are bound together. It turns out that ultraviolet C breaks oxygen apart into two atoms of oxygen. Then when you have one atom of oxygen and one molecule of oxygen, you form ozone, which is O3. It has three atoms of oxygen. And what's powerful about ozone, there's actually very little of it up there. I mean, there's, there's you know, maybe 10 uh, molecules of ozone for a million molecules of, of the, all the other gases. But the reason it's so important is that this conversion from oxygen to ozone back to oxygen back to ozone goes on all the time. It's an endless cycle, the ozone-oxygen cycle. And every time you split oxygen apart and every time you split ozone apart, you create heat. And this is what causes the stratosphere to be hotter. You know, when you go up in elevation, it gets colder, 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 till you get to the tropopause, which is the top of the troposphere, and as we go into the stratosphere, it gets warmer, warmer, warmer again. And what's causing that is this, is this dissociation of oxygen molecules into oxygen atoms, and then the reformation into ozone. And every time that happens, and it, the average ozone molecule only lasts for about eight days. So this is going on all the time. And any place where there's a lot of ozone, the atmosphere is hotter than um, when, when there's less ozone. We're talking with Dr. Peter Langdon Ward tonight about global warming. His book is called What Really Causes Global Warming. He's got a couple of web domains you can visit. I think, uh, P- Peter, do they go to the same site? I think they do, right? The uh, physicallyimpossible.com takes you to a page on whyclimatechanges.com. But I'm challenging any scientist in the world to find any significant problem with physically-impossible.com. What's written on that website, as cogently as I can write it, is why it's physically impossible for greenhouse gases to cause warming. This is a uh, kind of a short segment, Peter, but I wanted to ask you, if we stopped burning all of the fossil fuels that we burn tomorrow, we stopped driving our cars, we stopped uh, heating our homes, whatever it is, would that make a, a, a bit of a difference in this process? No, it'll have zero effect on global temperatures. Yet that's, that's yet that's something that's, that's we're being asked to do. Not, pretty definitive. Yeah, not and not to that extreme, but we're being pushed in that direction by governments and scientists at this point. Well, as I say, almost every scientist in the world is absolutely convinced greenhouse gases caused the problem, and the only way to solve the problem is to uh, stop burning fossil fuels. And there, are, you know, and when I, I talk about greenhouse warming theory as, as becoming the most expensive mistake ever made in the history <laughs> of science, we're talking about spending tens of trillions of dollars to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now, energy drives our quality of life. It drives our society. It, uh, you know, 
we need more and more energy. I'm saying now we can burn fossil fuels without overheating Earth, provide, and we can burn them safely, provided we can manage pollution. Pollution is still killing four-plus million people a year, um, and we have major problems with pollution. But we can burn fossil fuel without overheating Earth. And when you say pollution is killing folks, you're talking about air pollution um, and, and not pollution in the sense that it has an effect on global warming. No, it's, it's – well, it actually does have some effect on global warming. We can go into that um, later. But the, um, I'm talking about smog, mm-hmm. um, pollution. And it turns out in part of the world it's just from cooking fires. In Africa, for example, they cook on, on fires. In China, they use a lot of – the tradition has been using coal as your stove. And this leads to indoor air pollution. But the outdoor air pollution comes from cars and from smokestacks. Um, and it's – a lot of it is – gets turned into ozone, ground-level ozone, which is very toxic stuff. We don't like that. And it's regulated fairly heavily in the United States. You know, we had acid rain was a big problem in the United States back in the 70s. Right. And this was sulfuric acid uh, from burning coal and other things. But we passed a lot of regulations, and we cleaned that up. And in North America, in Europe, um, we've got pollution pretty well under control. We can do a lot of things we can do to improve it, but generally it's not the problem that it is in India, in China, Southeast Asia, and Africa. We've got about a minute before we have to go to break. You mentioned you have a challenge out to anyone who can refute what you uh, present on uh, physically-impossible.com. What is that challenge? Well, actually, the challenge, you know, it's never been demonstrated by an experiment that greenhouse warming theory works. I mean, if greenhouse gases absorb infrared and get warmer, we should be able to measure that. It's never been shown by experiment. There was an experiment done in 1900 that showed that it doesn't have any effect. I did an experiment a couple of years ago that showed that it didn't have any effect. So I'm offering $10,000 to the first person who can demonstrate by experiment that the warming observed since 1975 could be explained by the increases in greenhouse gases observed during the same time. Jason, by the way, for those of you who are wondering where he is, where he's been, he's off filming a new television show called Ghost Nation. That show will premiere in October of this year. Um, And he'll be back as soon as the filming is complete. So it'll be a few more weeks, and then he'll be back with us. Uh, And also, you probably heard the news, if you're a Ghost Hunters fan, that Grant Wilson is rebooting the show Ghost Hunters on the A&E Network. And that's supposed to uh, debut on the A&E channel, I think it's September. I thought I saw September 21st, maybe. Um, But we'll keep tabs on that, maybe even get Grant on the program to talk about it. That would be exciting. Tonight, we're talking about global warming, though. Our guest is Dr. Peter Langdon Ward. He is a geophysicist. His website is physically-impossible.com or whyclimatechanges.com. And his book is called What Really Causes Global Warming. And um, Peter, I've got to ask about the other scientists. And I always get concerned and confused when scientists are stuck in an idea and refuse to open their eyes and their ears to the possibility that their conclusions may be wrong, because that seems to be counter to everything that science stands for. Well, it's an interesting issue, and it's kind of where human nature comes together. Uh, I mean, it's only natural. If you sincerely believe in something, that it's hard for you to believe it's not that way. Um, and I mean, this this can be 
in, in science, outside of science. Uh, and as I say, you, we have a history of revolutions in science where people were absolutely sure the Earth was flat. You know, there was a major consensus the Earth was flat, and it was shown to be round. There was a major consensus the sun revolved around Earth. After all, you see it do that every day. And so um, this is a case on a par with those major changes in science where it turns out the physics was wrong. And it's been very interesting for me. I mean, I have a close friend who's one of the top theoretical physicists in the world. I still can't get him to understand. He wants to take me off into all these equations and prove to me that a photon is a wonderful thing. I'm saying, no, step back and look at what's going on, and you'll realize that a photon is a, is a piece of mathematics. It's not a piece of physics. We've talked about why global warming is happening, but we haven't necessarily talked about the consequence of global warming. Uh, first of all, some people will say, hey, I, I don't mind it uh, warming up a couple degrees here and there. I, I don't like winter, whatever it happens to be. What are the consequences that we're talking about? Well, there are winners and losers with everything. I mean, the, the immediate consequences that we're seeing, I mean, we, we're measuring the fact that animals uh, are moving up slope and further towards the poles in order to stay in an environment that they can be with. Uh, the hard part is when you get major droughts developing in certain areas, which didn't have it before. And, of course, this was a big problem in California over many years, which got culminated with the fires because you had all these dry, very dry forests. Um, they're, we're measuring the changes in different areas, and, and clearly if you live in Siberia or in Alaska, uh, it's nice to have a warmer year. Um, so, And it's turning out that the greater warming is in the polar regions because that's where the ozone depletion is the greatest. The greatest warming recorded on Earth in the last 1,800 years was on the Antarctic Peninsula, uh, in Antarctica, many degrees centigrade uh, over the last several uh, years. And that's because of the ozone that's within the ozone hole, within the Antarctic ozone, uh, ozone hole. Uh, in the northern climes, we're seeing ice, uh, less and less ice in the, in the Arctic Ocean uh, every year. And we're seeing glaciers melting, sea levels rising. In Miami, they're already having problems with, even when it's not raining, some of the sewers are backing up because sea level is higher, and it's coming, um, coming up through the, through the drainage system. So there's lots of, of changes, and there are many reports by scientists documenting these changes. And these changes are real. I mean, these are, this is what people are observing. Um, but uh, the problem is what caused it, and what do we do about it? So we, we've all heard reports of um, the ice depletion at the poles. Uh, we've heard reports of major chunks of the ice sheet breaking off and floating away and melting. And then we've also heard reports of larger-than-expected ice formations. What's the truth here? Are we losing ice at the poles? Are we gaining ice? Is it a net sum zero? What's happening there? Well, one of the effects of warming is that the oceans become warmer, which means they evaporate easier. You don't need as much heat to cause water to evaporate. So the humidity increases, which ends up the snowfall increases. So these reports, particularly from certain parts of Antarctica, uh, are there's, there's 
snow accumulating because there's more snow coming down, and that builds up the glaciers. Whereas at the same time, the ocean's getting warmer around Antarctica, and where the glaciers come out on the ocean, uh, it's melting them from underneath, in addition to the changes going on at the surface. So there, there are a wide variety of observations, and in most cases, we, we don't, there's some disagreement as to what's causing it, but what's actually being observed is pretty clear. We've also heard reports of uh, numbers uh, being offered to the public that may have been uh, distorted or maybe uh, altered or maybe even just cherry-picked to prove a point. Um, what does the public have to look out for for when, when these things are being reported to them? Uh, is that actually happening? Are these numbers being twisted to try to prove a point? And specifically, um, I'm talking the about short like, answer is, yeah, specifically, The short answer is no. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the really hard, the hard part that's going on here is that many people who are skeptical of climate change and want to disagree don't understand the science as well, or they focus on one particular thing in the science, uh, and, they, and many of them are focusing on ad hominem attacks. It really does no good to be challenging each other personally. The issue is, in nature, what is physically happening, what is causing it, and what can we do to fix it? A lot of the noise coming out is from people who want to prove that greenhouse gases are not a problem because they don't want the government to come up with more regulations and spend a bunch of money. And uh, so, on the one hand, the scientists get together and try to sh convince us that what they're seeing is correct, but now the problem is I've found big cracks in the foundation of the science. And so it's a little hard for the general person to say, well, who do I believe? In general, you need to believe the scientists. Well, you need to recognize right now we're in a revolution in science. New York State just passed sweeping anti-greenhouse gas and climate change legislation. I'm in Cooperstown, New York, so this hits home for me. Um, they're looking at cutting, and I don't know what these numbers mean specifically, but something like 168 million metric tons of greenhouse gases from emissions uh, annually. Um, and critics are saying that, you know, if you're going to replace coal-burning uh, electric plants and other sources of energy, you're going to have to use all of the land mass of New York State to put solar and wind on to even try to come close to the electrical electricity generation that you need. So. What does somebody in New York State uh, do when you see a government acting this way based on this science that you're saying has flaws in it? Well, remember um, that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was formed in 1988 in order to get people mobilized to do something about greenhouse gases. And so this led to the Paris Agreement. It's leading to laws in different states and, and different actions in different countries. And at the moment, around the world, most people are very concerned about warming and, about, and the fact that we've got to do something about it because within the, our lifetime, there's going to be significant changes. Suddenly, I'm coming along and saying, wait a minute. No, your models are wrong. They're based on mathematics that's mistaken. The mathematics is based on assumptions that are mistaken. And this is all going to change. I hope it's going to become a major issue in the next few months 
Um, but I've been working at this for a long time without much success. Um, but we're beginning to get some traction, and I hope that, uh, you know, and the, the unfortunate part is that the political leaders who believe the scientists tend to be Democratic, and they, the, the Republicans have a long history of denying science, especially if it doesn't agree with what they would like it to say. And so we're getting into a very interesting situation now where the people that believe the scientists are going to be in a very difficult position. This is all going to be changing uh, fairly rapidly. Um, yeah, so, you, you said that uh, this is, should be changing over the next few months. Is there something that's coming up, something happening, or you, do you just feel that your message is finally getting through? I'm working on 15 short videos, 5 to 10 minute videos, that explain this to the average person. And I'm planning within a few months to go worldwide to thousands, tens of thousands of people with a message to look at these videos. Uh, and that includes all political leaders, business leaders, scientists, average people that have, don't know much about it at all. I've tried, I'm trying to make these videos very approachable. They are detailed. They give a lot of science, but they give it in a way that the general reader can get to it. My book was written with the general reader involved, and, and most people seem to be able to understand it quite well. So anyway, I am planning a major push within the next few months, uh, and the exact timing we'll, we'll see as we get there. But I'm trying to get the message out because we need to understand we've taken the wrong turn, yeah. and we're about to waste tens of billions, of trillions of dollars. Talking with Dr. Peter Langdon Ward about global warming, and Peter, you were talking about uh, really working hard and a major push to get the word out through the course of using some videos and other things. I'm curious as to how programs unlike ours, and I know you've done other interviews and similar programs, but like mainstream media, uh, how do they react when you present these ideas to them? Uh, it's been interesting. I've done 140 radio shows in the last year or so. And, uh, um, some of the ones that have been really interesting to me have been some of the conservative stations that are uh, generally want to put down global warming. We've had some very intelligent discussions, some good call-in questions, and uh, there's been a genuine questioning. Um, I've done some public radio and, and news radio where, you know, it's a five-minute squirt or just a, a couple of minutes squirt, um, and... Uh, we get a fair response, but I'm getting a lot more response now than I used to, and we're working with slightly bigger markets. I mean, a recent show, I got over 41 people signed up on my website the next day. Um, so the, the interest is building. Uh, book sales are going up, and uh, uh, I just have a personal feeling that I'm going to get – I've got a good chance of getting somewhere this year. Uh, I've spent a lot of time getting ready for this. I went through a lot of training uh, in order and ways of doing this, and uh, uh, I'm hopeful. But you never know until it's done. What about the scientific community? Are you finding con converts there? Well, it's interesting. They, uh, uh, the Daily Beast tried to beat up on me uh, last fall. <laughs> uh, there was a reporter that wrote an article, 
And the most, the best thing she said in there says that Ward, the problem with Ward as a skeptic is he's got a very strong scientific background. <laughs> and uh, uh, I've been uh, left alone by a lot of people. The problem I'm having most with the scientists, many of whom are my friends, um, are uh, they just they just can't believe that I could be right. I mean, one of the leaders, lead authors of a recent report in the United States, someone I talk to fairly regularly, he said to me a while back, says, Peter, there is just no way you could be right and all the rest of us are wrong. And I said, well, can you give me a scientific reason? And there was no answer. <laughs> um, and uh, I... I know many of the leading climate scientists. I am well familiar with their work. Um, I have talked to many of them. I've actually paid for a booth at conferences, which are usually for selling equipment, but I've paid for a booth uh, where I talk science and hand out information on the science. I've done this for four years. I've ended up talking to more than 7,000 people in that situation. These are all scientists attending the meeting. Um, I've only had two people yell and scream at me out of 7,000. Um, you know, it's clear some people don't want to believe me. Uh, many of the younger ones especially um, are kind of saying, oh, I hadn't heard about this. i got to look into this. So, you know, the word is beginning to get through, but part of the problem is the scientists have been under attack so much uh, in the climate wars that they're kind of battle-scarred. They've got their wagons circled and, you know, the, the climate wars right now are just people lobbing mud pies at each other. There's not a lot of real cogent discussion going on. And one of my messages is, look, we've got to get debate back into science. We've got to get rational debate back into climate science. You, and one of the things you pointed out is that, uh, you know, there's a, there was a consensus built, and, and the scientists have kind of determined that they are part of the consensus. But my confusion here, and we only have about uh, 30 seconds, so we can pick it up on the other side. But my confusion is here is a real scientist would look at facts like the ones that you've pre- presented and show the, showing these correlations between lava flow and warming and at least ask, start asking some questions. And that doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah, I mean, that's the way we like to think that science works. <laughs> I think in this case, we've, we've formed a cartel. There's been a major, the biggest effort ever in science to form a cartel. And that cartel doesn't, you know, group think yeah. keeps people in line, but it doesn't solve problems. Peter, we've talked about lava as being a major culprit in warming. Uh, we've talked about uh, CFCs in which I think we've... Uh, found some solution to in uh, our efforts to ban and find alternative uh, 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 compounds that can be used in their place. Um, so if lava is the main culprit here, is there any way we can do anything to affect this? Uh, as far as what the lava effect, no, other than to prepare for the fact that if we begin to get lava flows that are as big as some of the things we've observed in, in uh, geologic history, we need to we need to figure out what we could do. I mean, it may be that we can do things to help support the ozone layer and keep it happy. So our research should be based now on the ozone layer, what makes it work, how it works, how the volcanoes interact with it. Are you suggesting? I do want to go back to what we were discussing a little bit before sure. and just tell a story. of Max Planck uh, was a, one of the fathers of modern physics. He and Albert Einstein really got 
modern physics going in the direction back around 1900. And uh, he got the Nobel Prize for some work on radiation uh, in 1918. But anyway, he said at some point, new scientific ideas never spring from a communal body, however organized, but rather from the head of an individually inspired researcher who struggles with his problems in lonely thought and unites all his thought on one single point, which is his whole world for the moment. I can very much relate to that, because <laughs> I've been a lone wolf now for many years, constantly wondering whether, you know, I've got it right and why I'm coming up with a different point of view. Um, and the other thing that Planck said is a scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that's familiar with it. Well, I've, uh, I've read that to several senior scientists, and it's interesting to watch their response. Uh, but it is life. I mean, when any of us are, when we spend our life working hard, publishing and uh, teaching and uh, doing research, convinced the one thing is this is the way life is, and everything we've done depends on that. Um, it's hard to change. I mean, my friend, the theoretical physicist, said to me at one point, he said, Peter, if you're right, everything I've done in my life is wrong. Mm. That's tough for anybody to deal with. That is very difficult. I was impressed that he could be that verbal. Yeah, that is that is very difficult. Um, but, you know, I, I'm still scratching my head over the fact that you pointed out, I mean, you actually showed a correlation between lava flow and... And temperatures. I mean, you've, you've you've illustrated that throughout time in geological time, and yet the the folks that are talking about greenhouse gases can't make those correlations at all, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Most of the ones that are really the noise, most you know, the ones that are leading the charge, um, don't know much about geology. I mean, my I've been giving talks every year at the Geological Society of America uh, annual meeting. And I got a pretty big audience there. And the geologists are my most friendly audience. Um, and at, at my table in the, in the exhibit hall, um, we get some really interesting discussions going about geology. But most of the climate scientists don't know much about geology and uh, don't think that way. And uh, they just, they, they basically are afraid that spending time that I must be wrong, and that it's just a waste of time. Yeah, and they don't want to spend the time. You, they treat it, they treat what I'm saying as spam, <laughs> and you know we all have to decide every day what we're not going to do, <laughs> which emails <laughs> we're going to read, and which ones we aren't going to read. Right, and yeah, you know, it's it's the way life is. You mentioned a few minutes ago um, something about having people sign up on your website. What are they signing up for? Uh, there's an option on the website to, to get communication from me, to get on an email list. I haven't actually been using that list, but I'm about to. Um, and uh, people on that list will get some of the first announcements about the videos and, and where we go from here. And, in fact, I'm, I'm thinking of offering it to people who sign up to review the videos ahead of time before they come out. Uh, but uh, there is big interest there. And I've been getting a lot of interest on the book, which is available from Amazon and other places. But if you buy it from me, you get it signed and a lot of other information that comes with it, some bumper stickers and, and other things. 
So um, and just just to clear this up, people can just go to your website and they can sign up on your email list. That's all they have to do, and then they can get this information from you. Yes. Okay. Um, and that's just right on the website. All right. So when we talk about again trying to fix this problem, you mentioned we need to do more research on uh, the ozone layer, how we can uh, influence it. Are you suggesting that maybe we should look at ways of producing artificial ozone to put into the atmosphere? Is that an option? Um, not really. Uh, when we did atmospheric testing of nuclear explosions, that, that we kicked the ozone up for a short period of time. Um, if we want to set off a whole bunch of nuclear explosions, we might have an effect on the ozone layer for a very short period of time. The amount of energy that's involved that causes the heating um, is huge, and it's from the sun, and it's from this very hot ultraviolet radiation Uh it's hard for us to provide that much. But there are many things about the ozone layer that we don't understand. I explained that partly in the videos. Um, and these are things we need, to, we need to start thinking about. It'll be a lot more useful research than continued research on greenhouse gases. If we follow the path of the greenhouse gas community and we start enacting taxes on carbon use and, uh, you know, reduced emissions and spend, as you said, tens of trillions of dollars in this effort, uh, what are we going to have to show for it? One big embarrassment when we finally <laughs> realize nothing happens. I mean, you know, you could, uh, you could spend $10 trillion now and it will have zero effect on the temperature. You know, 2016 was the hottest year on record. 2017 is cooler. 2018 is a little cooler. 2019, I'm predicting, will be even a little cooler. It'll be back closer to what it was in 2016 or 2013, I mean. So um, we are seeing changes, but it's not going to get five degrees hotter. You know, it's not going to get two degrees hotter, as, as people are, are trying to argue, based on greenhouse warming theory. The models they have are very sophisticated models. They burn up a huge amount of, of supercomputer time, uh, but they're mathematical models, and they're based on the wrong assumptions, the wrong equations. So these these uh, warnings they've been giving us about uh, temperatures rising to the point of uh, sea levels rising, rising hundreds of feet over the next 30, 40, 50 years, based on these assumptions or these theories, uh, you're saying just they're not, that's not going to happen? I'm saying all the predictions they're making are not physically realistic. I mean, it's, it's the, the warming we've had so far has been a pain. It's had some effects, but we can manage that. We can manage what's happening at the moment. The reason climate is such a big issue worldwide now is the predictions made by the climate models that by 2050, um, and especially by 2100, the earth is going to be very seriously warmed. All of that is based on mistaken mathematics, mistaken assumptions. The ozone layer itself, you said um, it would take decades for it to restore itself to the point it was at in 1970, say. Um, we have reduced or virtually eliminated, but not maybe not completely, the CFCs that have been causing the problem. Um, are your assumptions based on no major lava flows over the next 30, 40 years? Well, I, I did say that when I, when I said that, that assuming there's no major lava flows, and these are rare. I mean, uh, the one in Iceland was the biggest in 1783. 
that there shouldn't be warning. The um, the models that we're seeing are just are not realistic. It's not going to happen. It cannot happen. It's physically impossible. So, you know, we all know how politically charged climate change discussion is. How is it possible for us to actually come together? I mean, it almost seems like we can't come together on anything, at least in this country. Um, what do we need to do to start thinking <laughs> thinking uh, on, on solutions to this problem in a common way as opposed to fighting about it? Well, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I see I, my responsibility at the moment is to try to bring the sides together. And on the one hand, they get the scientists to recognize that there was a mistake here. It was made before they were born, and uh, we've got to face up to that mistake and try to make the, the skeptics realize that, well, we don't have to spend so much money. We don't need so many government regulations, but we do need to control pollution, and the climate is warming, you know. <laughs> and um, so it's a problem, and I spend a lot of time thinking what I can do, and that's part of the reason I'm, I've written and producing these videos and, and the book and, and many other things. The book, and I'm, go ahead. I'm continually sorry. hopeful that I might get somewhere. The book is available now. Of course, we've talked about it. What really causes global warming? And you said the videos are coming out over the next few months. Do you know when they'll be available to be viewed? No, it depends on um, how the whole system builds here. I mean, I'm, I'm going to begin to use them. I've spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, and uh, I've spent a lot of time talking to scientists and a lot of time talking to skeptics. I've been to conferences by skeptics, conferences by scientists. Um, I'm going to try to build up some background before I go public uh, with some of the key people and uh, with hope of, of you know moving things better and faster. But so anyway, I'm in the process. I know where I want to go. And I know from experience that I've laid the groundwork and that I can, it'll take form, but I can't predict the form right at the moment. But I certainly hope by, certainly by early fall, that uh, these videos are well known and that people are beginning to look at them very carefully. So we have a large audience here listening, and they're very interested in this topic. We've talked about it at other times. How can they individually get involved and, and work toward the solution? Well, in terms of understanding what I'm talking about, the website has a very large amount of information. The book is an effort. Much of the website, particularly the lower parts of the website, are, are fairly detailed science, and it's fully referenced, high-quality science. I wrote it so that if a scientist became interested, they could get the details right away. The book was written more with a general audience involved, and it's readily available, and that's a great way, plus looking at the website, to understand what I'm talking about. In terms of what we individually can do to solve the problem, the problem individually that we face is a much higher risk of sunburn, of skin cancer, of, of uh, cataracts. Uh, we need to be much more aware of the fact that laying around on the beach uh, in the sun without adequate ultraviolet B protection sun cream, uh, it's dangerous. It's a lot more dangerous now than it used to be. Uh, 
Well, you know, that's an interesting point. And I don't like to use anecdotes as uh, any kind of evidence. But I know that, you know, when I was a child, we were out in the sun all the time. And maybe that wasn't good. I don't know. But it certainly didn't seem to have the consequences that it does today. It's a lot worse now than it was before 1970. And it's worse, actually, in the winter um, than in the summer. But And, of course, most of our beach time is off in the summer. But still, laying around in the sun these days, at any time of the year, there's more damaging radiation that you're going to absorb. And it's very important when you buy sunscreen that it say UVA, UVB protection. Um, Those are ultraviolet A and ultraviolet B, because that is what you need to screen out. Peter, uh, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us and um, giving us this information, this perspective. And I really hope that when the videos are available or if you uh, write another book or or have more to add to this discussion, we'd love to have you back and kind of help you uh, champion this this cause a little bit because it makes a lot of sense to us here. Well, it's been a real pleasure. You asked wonderful questions, and uh, I I hope working together, we can make a big difference in climate over the next year. I'm with you there. Thanks so much and take care and let us know when those videos are available. Again, Dr. Peter Langdon Ward, check out the website whychlimatechanges.com and the book is called What Really Causes Global Warming. It's available on the website as uh, Dr. Ward said, if you order it through the website through him, he'll autograph it for you. Otherwise, you can find it on Amazon as well. Hey Jay, you hungry? I just heated up a couple potatoes. Here, let me grab them out of the microwave. No, JV, don't. Ah, my thumb! Ah, my thumb! Don't let this happen to you. Crapco's Thumbrella is the perfect protection for the perfect unfinger. The Crapco Thumbrella is made up of high-quality, heat-resistant asbestos and perfectly suited to handle the most dangerous jobs. Just don't breathe near it. The Crapco Thumbrella. Use the Thumbrella for ultimate thumb protection while using matches, pouring coffee, sunbathing near the pool, changing spark plugs, handling kill-fired ceramics, and so much more. And how about those romantic candlelit dinners? Come over here, baby. Watch the candle. Don't worry, I brought protection. Thanks, Thumbrella. <laughs> the Crapco Thumbrella usually sells for $29.95, but call now and we'll triple your order. One for each thumb. And with every order today, Crapco will donate 30 cents to safety. Save a forgotten thumb international. The Crapco Thumbrella is the only safety-approved thumb protection device on the market. And isn't your thumb worth it? The Crapco Thumbrella should not be considered a thumb protection device and is illegal in some states. In fact, most states. In fact, all states. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks again to Dr. Peter Langdon Ward for being with us tonight. A very, very interesting perspective. Um, We're going to follow his work and bring him back on the program when he releases those videos. Looking ahead to next week, of course, tomorrow night is a best of program as it is every Friday night on the on the show. Uh, Next week, we've got Greg Clark coming on to talk about the murder, the unsolved murder, that is, of Francis Bullock and also the Appalachian hauntings. He's written a couple books, including Ghost Country and Three Days in 63. And then also next week, Ryan O'Shea, he's an entrepreneur and a futurist. He'll be talking about transhumanism, biohacking, and the future of humanity. All very interesting topics during next week's program. We've got another uh, a couple of shows to settle, but we're waiting for one of the guests that had to reschedule to see if we can get 
him on. So we've got a very, very full week again next week with you, of course. In the meantime, please swing by our social media, like the Beyond Reality Radio Facebook page and my Facebook page, which is J.V. Johnson. Also go to YouTube, find the J.V. Johnson YouTube channel. Give that a subscribe. Click the little bell icon so you get notifications of when we stream live. There's also a great archive of programs there and some special content. That's going to do it for tonight. Have a great night, everyone. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll see you again. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.